Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson here of Peak Prosperity with a very special interview for you. I cannot wait to uh, talk with this author of this book called The Great Taking, which we've been reviewing at my website for a while. If you haven't read it, you should. It's uh, it's something everybody needs to understand. And this is uh, really going to be a real treasure to talk with our author today. So today we have our special guest here. Um, the Great Taking, David Rogers Webb. David, thank you so much for making the time. I know you're getting to us a little late, your time over there uh, in Europe, but thank you very much for being part of this program. Can't wait to get started. Welcome. Chris, thank you for, for your interest in, in talking about this. Well, the, the book is The Great Taking, and before we dive into it, and we will, um, it, it, which is really outlining a, a, a lot of layers of legalese that sort of surround this, this topic of... Um, well, who owns what? And in this case, I'm talking about financial assets. Before we get there, um, David, what's your background? You, you spent a lot of it in the book, but I just want people to know who we're talking to here and and your expertise on the subject. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I'd say if if my life had taken a different track, I would have been a scientist like you. I was pretty good at mm -hmm. science when I was, yeah. you know, a kid and in high school, and I would have gone into medicine uh or uh well that that's really the track i was on but then because of um really what was happening in cleveland when i was growing up um i uh decided i need to needed to understand what was how business worked what was happening there and um so, uh, you know, my father, my father was an engineer, you know, one side of my family was medical people and the other side were engineers. And, uh, I, I would, you know, I used to joke with my wife that I was the black sheep of the family because I just went into business. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I, I went to business school and I did a minor in systems analysis, which was basically computer uh engineering software and uh engineering and um uh i i got a subscription of the wall street journal i really didn't have anybody to guide me as to how to do this um and i would force myself to go page by page through the wall street journal this was when i was in college to try to understand things and i noticed um all these tombstones most people don't know what tombstones are these are, these were sometimes a quarter of a page or maybe not quite a quarter of a page uh announcing a major deal um and the firms that were involved in that and i just uh, almost like a child going through this i kept noticing these things and um noticed that there were very big numbers involved with these these transactions. And uh, I found that, you know, the firms really in New York that were doing these things. And uh, I decided I needed to go to New York. And that's um, kind of the way I am. I do that sort of thing. I uh, when I when I decide that I need to know something, I will just get on a plane and go there. Uh, of course, at that point, I didn't have the money for a plane ticket, so we were driving to New York. <laughs> but, but we, we, um, uh, I, I ended up. Um, I started with this computer services firm, and uh, then I talked my way into a position in one of my clients, which was uh, Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and. Uh, that was a very intensive experience where uh, we were often working for days, literally without sleep or just lying on the floor for a little while and getting up and working more, working on deals. Um, so I, I learned to do uh, uh, analysis under extreme conditions often, you know, building these models, working all night long for meetings the next day. So I, I could deal with a lot of stress and somehow still function. 
And after five years of that, I decided I was ready for something else and moved to a private equity firm, which at that point was the biggest private equity firm in the world. Um, so we were doing big, big deals. And again, fairly uh, essentially within the first few months, I was uh, I ended up running uh, a deal that became pretty important and handled all the processes around that. And, you know, there's a difference between when you're doing mergers and acquisitions as an investment bank, you're really like a salesman. It's uh, you're acting as an agent. Um, you know, there's a lot of sophistication work involved with that. But when you when you move to the private equity side, you're really in the shoes of the principal. So it's a different, much more in-depth kind of due diligence, uh, because the only way to control your risk is to have done the work up front before you make the investment. And um then uh, then eventually I was managing equities, public market equities and uh, hedge funds after that, long short equity, uh, and did that through the dot gov dot com bubble and bust, which again was very intense <laughs> to, to go through that because I, I had developed my own strategy for this and um, basically build up how to do this and ended up, you know, designing a trading room, training teams of people to do this. And we, we ran the strategy with hundreds of positions that we had on, on the same time at the same time. Um, but that was mainly on the short side. So it was a way to control the risk of any one position really hurting us badly. Um, because we, 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 uh, I, I developed, um, I, I found that if you use the major indexes as your hedge, that didn't work very well because, uh, money tends to kind of mindlessly go into the index. So, um, if you build it up with, um, smaller companies that aren't necessarily in the index, um, those don't tend to receive the flows in a in a in a crisis situation. Um, so I, I I dubbed this the cream of the crap. This is this is this is now think of this. This is going into this is at the time of the dot com bubble inflating, and as we know, many of these companies were had no real business. Um, but still, you could come in in the morning and an analyst might have said, uh, I've raised my price target for this from five times revenue to 10 times revenue. I think it's going to be worth 10 times revenue. And the, the stock would literally double at the opening. <laughs> it, was, it was that kind of fun and games being short these things through that period of time. So as a matter of just getting to the point where the thing finally started breaking and rolling over, uh, surviving at that point. And I was one of the very few that survived to that point to actually be able to be positioned to be short the, the, the dot-com bubble. Yeah, um, full contact sports. So, so just so people understand my background a little bit, um, uh, which fits, is that I came out of the corporate world and then for whatever reason, I fell into, I'll call it day trading. Um, I was holding very short positions. I was mainly in the futures market. I learned from a guy who who just had 30 years of experience. He taught me all the ins and the outs and I was really good at it. And then I started to get bad at it and then I sucked at it. Um, and something <laughs> happened right somewhere between 2005 and 2008, it all went to hell because I was no longer playing against humans. Um, yes, and, yes, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, and my fat, my fat, slow finger couldn't couldn't quite adapt, um, yeah. you know, to the situation. And I finally realized that something had structurally changed, and it was painful. Tuition yeah. was expensive, but I learned my lesson, and I said, "Oh my gosh, this is not what I thought it was. Yeah. Uh, this isn't my dad's market, you know. <laughs> it's something." No, no. 
It's been it's been highly artificial for 20 years. You know, the I, I talk about this in the book that the change I saw was in March of 2003. Um, all the indications were we were going into a collapse at that point um, because the, the signs of stress in the real economy were severe and uh, things like foreclosure rates and uh, uh, delinquent utility bill payments and um, the commercial and industrial loans were actually collapsing. The um, velocity of money was collapsing. And so I thought, okay, well, here, here we go. But um, uh, suddenly everything started going up at the same time. So bonds and every sector of the equity market, which um, really kind of made my head explode because mm -hmm. that never happened before. You know, you could always see the rotation and that's the way I operated. I would, I would, I, I, I knew enough of, uh, of what was on the menu <laughs> to be able to, to selectively buy what was being sold and sell what was urgently being bought. And that's the way I worked all the time. But in this case, there was no rotation. So quantitative easing, the Fed, the Fed does this. Their murky powers stay murky until they want you to know they have that power. Mm. So quantitative easing actually began in 2003, not 2008. <laughs> yeah, I saw I I noticed those things too, where everything just sort of moves in synchrony and and there is no sector rotation. It's like everything goes up into the right all of a sudden and it's and it's very instant. And um yeah. and I want to talk into that. I mean, I just I can't I, I love talking with people who actually get it at the level you do because you you were there, you were in the trenches, you analyze things, you have all this experience, and you developed what I would say is um what what the mentor I learned from, he was like, you have to breathe a certain market, right? So I did yeah. oil, gold, and a little bit of silver. Those were my only markets, and I knew them on a commodity basis really, really well, right? And I had all the news feeds that could influence those prices, and I understood things. Anyway. Yes. So you were there, and and you really you got that sense. And then so and it's important because when you know how it was working, you're then in a position to detect when something has changed, right? And, and it's going in a whole new direction. And so take us through um, this, like what led you to write this book, The Great Taking, because um, it, it seems greatly risky <laughs> in many respects to me. Oh, well, it is. It is. So what tell just for, for listeners, just what is this book about? If you if you have a summary of it in your mind yet. Well, as I as I say, very simply, it's about taking collateral and I mean all of it. Comprehensively, they have worked at this. So it's not it's not going to be a bit of it. It's not an accident. It is a very deliberate strategy execute, executed over decades. So, um, but I I I've taken to saying to people, this is not an investment advice book. It's not a finance book. It's not an economics book. It's something much bigger than that because ultimately there's no way to run from this um you can't invest your way out of it uh so it's it's really the only answer to this is spreading awareness of this all the way to the top of the system yep um so it it is um uh i i i believe and i express this in the book this is uh actually an aspect of a global hybrid war in which we are living and um um this if if we don't end it we're all trapped in this. It's it's it is open ended hybrid war. So there are no limits in terms of geography, no limits in terms of time, 
no limits in terms of what it does to our minds and our bodies. So I want to I want to go into this because I mean this is I, this is actually shocking for a lot of people when they find this out. So let's start at something very simple. I put ten thousand dollars into a bank account, and most people are surprised to find out that that when you do something like that, that makes you what's known as an unsecured creditor of the bank. You don't have money in a bank. You have um, you are an unsecured creditor, meaning. You have no you have no security in that whatsoever. Now there's this thing called FDIC, which they say, oh, well, there's some insurance in case so that ten thousand is covered. But if I had five hundred thousand dollars in a bank, even if it's in five different bank accounts, it, it you know, um, hundred thousand each, I'm still only covered up to the two fifty limit, subject to the amount of whether or not the FDIC even is good for all of the money that might get uh, in in there because it's an insurance pool in essence, right? So you're an unsecured creditor of the bank. And I think people sort of get that because the FDIC, but I think the shocking thing is for people to discover that their portfolios that they might have in their 401ks are held with that, a broker. That is what is different here because in the, in the thirties, and this, this is, this is a, the, the point I make in the book is you can't believe that this could be the case, that everything could be taken mm -hmm. like this. And I say, mm -hmm. uh, well, it's been done before. If you go back into what was done in the early 20th century, uh, there it's basically the same playbook. But what what is different is that the innovation is taking property that is not encumbered with debt. That's what is different. So you have no you have no borrowings. You own your securities free and clear, you think you own them. And for 400 years, you, it, it was personal property and you did own it outright. And if your broker failed or the bank failed, you would say, I'm sorry that happened. Here's where you transfer my securities, no question. But um, the moorings were intentionally slipped <laughs> on this so that there is what's called legal certainty that you will not have your assets when there's widespread insolvency, even though you had no borrowings against them. And, um, uh, but, well, this is, uh, let, let's talk about that because I mean, a lot of people think that it like, like for instance, I'm old enough that when my great grandfather died and he had, a, a, went through probate and there were some shares delivered. I remember the day. I was probably yeah. in the 70s sometime. A Manila envelope showed up. It was, uh, you know, certified mail. We open it up, and there's some shares of Bethlehem Steel, which he, you know, bequeathed, and some some bank stock. My name was on there. It was a very nice piece of paper. There was a QCIP number in the corner. Like yes. that was my share ownership, right? Yes. That I that that would have been actual direct share ownership with my name on it. But today. Even if I'd taken those same shares, which had been passed down through the family and put them in a brokerage account, they would have been wrapped up into a a, a portfolio statement that says I I own them. But in fact, I only now have what what's called a security entitlement. Yes. Which just means I have a claim in a sea of claims, and it turns out it's fairly subordinate to maybe other claims. Well, what they've done, I mean, is they that, really, is that right? They, they <laughs> really just a crazy thought to me because. They took something that was property that you absolutely owned outright. They dematerialized it. That was the first step to have broad dematerialization of securities. So they're held in book entry form. But still, you know, there are records. It could be known who owned what. So the dematerialization yeah. itself did not sever the property rights. Then they created the concept of the legal entitlement, which you just referred to, which means you have a contractual claim, which in bankruptcy is worth nothing. When you have a contractual claim, it's very weak. So they took something where people had absolute prior, uh, property interest and turned it into a contractual claim. But then they also took derivative contracts in the derivatives complex that are contracts that should not have had a priority interest and gave the secured creditors there priority interest. 
to the public's collateral. So it's like a sleight of hand where they've severed the property rights for the people whose property it is, actually is, and they've given priority uh, uh, interest in a in a in a in financial instruments that had always been contractual interests that wouldn't have had a standing in the bankruptcy. So these are all legal constructs, very deliberately done. And I know it's difficult for people to parse through this, but the mm -hmm. so the first step is the entitlement. Then the securities are all held in pooled form. So there's no specific identification to, to the individual. Um, and then the um, pooled securities may be used by the, um, the custodians and further on in the financial system as collateral without restriction, no restriction at all. They call it self-help. There is no restriction at all. And uh, a very important document that is shown in the book, and I include it in its entirety, is this response of the Federal Reserve to a questionnaire um, prepared by what was called the Legal Certainty Group in Europe. Now, what legal certainty means is making it legally certain that the secured creditors will take the client assets. That's what they're. That's what that, they're working. That's the on. certainty. <laughs> that's we, the, we want to be certain about that. That we want to be certain about that, and and so they're asking the Fed, which was kind of the big brother that had done this first, and actually, frankly, the U.S. system was imposing this on the rest of the world, saying you have to to conform to this regime, you have to subvert your national law to make sure that people don't have the property rights to their securities. Really, literally, this is what was done. So um, in this response by the Fed, they also make it crystal clear that even if you have segregated securities, you've been told that you have a segregated account. This is the illusion that even sophisticated institutional investors operate under where they think their securities are segregated, they're told they are, but the Fed document makes it absolutely clear you only have a pro rata share of what is left in the pool, just like everybody else after the secured creditors take, um, take the securities out of the pool, which is only matters in an insolvency. But of course, that's what we're all concerned about. <laughs> is what will happen in the insolvency. And apparently that's what they're concerned about is what will happen in the insolvency. <laughs> so so 2008 and nine, right? So, so um, I remember in October of 2008, I sent out an alert. I do this very rarely to my followers. And I said, just go get cash out of the bank. Because I was watching some things that were alarming me, right? I was, uh, there's yeah. certain uh, se sectors that I keep an eye on. One was um, reinsurance companies. Um, another was uh, banks, bank holding and money center banks. I was just watching and they were just like, just cratering. And and of course, people said, oh, that was very alarmist of you. And then and then I read later um, in the Wall Street Journal, they're describing the CEO of a major bank is, is walking through a, his bank, his own bank lobby at two in the morning in that October, going to this emergency meeting. And the guy recounts how he kind of stopped and took money out of the ATM because he didn't know how this was going to go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? I can imagine. No, they I knew were, it, right? Were, so, but they must have, that must have really put the fear of God that they, like how, well, they must have, like this whole derivative nightmare almost blew up then is what I'm thinking was all, what all that panic was about, right? It must have been that there was some daisy chain of collateral Best. Well, there it was, was about and to we explosively know, you know all basically uh, many many uh, banks were insolvent, and certainly all the prime brokers were insolvent, and they were made banks, you know, like Goldman Sachs. Yes, uh, right. So they were they were made into banks and and yeah. in loaded with uh, trillions of dollars to to paper it over. So they weren't they weren't ready yet for the, the end game. What, what did happen was the Lehman bankruptcy 
was clearly, I believe, teed up, you know, to to cement the case law. And I'll I'll just mention mention this. What what happened prior in 2005, um, there were changes made to what what's called safe harbor, which is I say sounds good, sounds like a comforting like thing. That. But again, like legal certainty, like legal certainty, what they mean by safe harbor, safe harbor assures, again, that the secured creditors take the client assets uh, in a bankruptcy and, and assures that the uh, derivatives contracts in particular, which are contracts, they would have had a very weak standing in a bankruptcy, take mm -hmm. This, the that collateral will go to the secured creditors. And the collateral is the collateral that has been extended out of these pools of client assets. So the, the um, Lehman Brothers, in the case of Lehman Brothers, JP Morgan was the custodian for client assets. And if you remember, people used to have the idea that the custodian actually had a responsibility to the clients. Mm -hmm. uh, so JP Morgan is the custodian. JP Morgan was also the secured creditor that took the client assets. So they were wearing both hats. And that's what people have to understand. They're bank holding companies. So they're different subsidiaries. <laughs> so, so you have one subsidiary that's acting as custodian, and another subsidiary has a security interest in, in, you know, in the collateral through the derivatives contracts, where they've used the client securities for their proprietary trading. Um, and not surprisingly, the you know very sophisticated clients said. Uh, challenge this, tried to get tried to get their assets back. And the shocking thing, this is the the decision is shown in the book, the Southern District uh, uh, of New York, which is Manhattan, the bankruptcy court there, found in favor of JP. Morgan, that JP. Morgan absolutely had the right to take the client assets in the interest of, financial stability and that this was precisely the case that was envisioned yeah. with the Steve harbor act and and further that they only had to to make a decision as to whether jp morgan was entitled to take the securities and in the judgment they say that J.P. Morgan, as one of the largest banks in the world, is quite obviously a member of the protected class. Let me bring this up, um, if I can, David, yeah. because because this this was just this was just too much for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so uh, I'm sorry. What? So so you have here. This is. I'm pointing. People can't see it. I'm pointing here at at this uh, court ruling from the Southern District. And I've highlighted a few parts, but this is actually, this is, they wrote this down. I'm shocked, right? But they said, first up, can you explain what this means where they say, I, you know, it, it, maybe it should be exempt from being upset by a bankruptcy court under the more lenient standards of constructive <laughs> fraudulent transfer or preference liability. Mm, interesting legal words there, but they're great Well, terms. those, you know, those, I mean, if you're familiar with bankruptcy, that's, that's pretty clear. And I explained it a little bit earlier that, yeah. that this case rang every bell for this having been fraudulent. Now, right. it's not hard to understand that this, what they have done here would have been fraud for centuries would have been fraud. And yeah. just by changing, um, changing the law, essentially on the eve of the great financial crisis, they allowed something that would have been fraud to be upheld by the bankruptcy court. So what would have made it fraud? Um, it, it is 
transferring assets on the eve of the bankruptcy from an entity that is insolvent, uh -huh. uh, which is clearly the case. That's yeah. why bankrupt. So, so yeah. it's, a, it's grabbing the assets from the entity uh, that is fraudulent or, or, or insolvent. But the big thing, now hold on to this, the big thing is that the client assets are taken free of payment. There is no consideration what? given for the client that's, assets. That, that's, that's, that, that's one of the litmus tests for a fraudulent transfer. Yes, yes. So this, this is how it is legalized theft. I mean, you could explain this to a class of 12-year-olds and they would understand this should not be allowed. You know, that you're, you're, take, you're using the assets of the public without their knowledge, without restriction, without any oversight, taking the assets free of payment and then saying, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you've lost those. <laughs> Because we've made it absolutely legally certain that we take those assets. <laughs> they said it out loud. They said the quiet part out loud. J.P. Morgan Corporation is one of the leading financial institutions in the world, quite obviously is a member of the protected class and qualifies as both a financial institution and a financial participant. Normally, they don't say the, that part out loud. <laughs> but... <laughs> It, it, it is, but, but, you know, the shocking thing is, um, I mean, it was challenged, the court mm -hmm. upheld, and broadly, this has just been, um, let's say there hasn't been much pushback. In fact, after this, in 2008, um, this was uh, implemented in Europe. So uh, hmm. Europe, Europe harmonized with this, um, uh, with this law. Law was harmonized. So they had gone through a process of identifying countries that had problematic law. Problematic law meaning law that assured that people own their securities. So they mm -hmm. had to support that and. You know, the beginnings of that process was in uh, maybe 2002. Um, so it, it was running in parallel with what was happening in the U.S., but it was first implemented in the U.S. Um, and uh, but but it was ultimately cemented into uh, law in Europe under something called the Central Securities Depository Regulation, which was in 2014. So it took it took years. They worked at this for a long time, and there could have been points where people could have stood up and said, "Hey, this it should be illegal what you're doing." But but mm -hmm. the people in government don't work for the public. It's quite clear. They work for the the banks that control yeah. the governments. Yeah. Well, um, so so I'm a big fan. I'm I'm this kind of guy. If somebody says they're gonna do something, then it happens. I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe they did it, right? Um, and so the WEF came out with this really cryptic little thing when they're talking about the context of the Great Reset. Now, I understand why we need a great reset, because when you look at the overall indebtedness compared to the income of the world at this point, there's only one operative question that has to be resolved in my mind, and that is who's going to eat the losses. And obviously, the insiders who have legal access to rewrite the laws are rewriting them busily to say, not us, tag, you're it, right? So I think it's that simple. We shouldn't have ever gotten this far over the indebtedness super cycle, but here we are, right? But one well, of the things the WEF... Let me say, though, that I believe in looking at this whole structure and how long this has been planned. And, you know, we haven't talked about the, what's happened to the velocity of money, that this is the big mm -hmm. under. And we'll come back to that as the reason we're in this. But I believe that this hyper financialization, which we began talking about, the moorings being slipped, the the growth of everything financial outstripping anything real in the world has been made to happen. 
That did not have to happen. And there are lots of examples of things that were engineered to make this excess um, and, and the damage a certainty. You know, again, again, that if you if you laid this out simply to a class of 12 year olds, they would be able to say, well, just don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's it's right. it's it's uh, so so it's um, the, well, the it's, like, it's like in um, two, 2008 and nine. Right. In, in the context, you know, Timothy Geithner comes out and says, oh, these are too big to fail, which became systemically important banks or the SIBs, which morphed into sci fi systemically important financial institutions. And their answer was, oh, well, let's make a law so that the derivatives get paid off first so it doesn't destabilize the system. And a 12-year-old who's cognitively there would say, how about you just don't have derivatives? And yes, like, yes. Let's not, let's not fix create, the system to make it safe for How about for you bombs. don't create let's get rid of the something that can destroy the entire financial system? So, so you, have to, approach. you have to say, this is part of what I'm trying to do with the book is to say, look, these are constructs. Uh, they're all artificial. And there's nothing inevitable about having created this hyper-financialization. There's plenty of evidence that it has been engineered. It, it has been made to happen. And my, um, uh, my, my point here is that all of all of you know derivative instruments aren't even real. That's why they're derivatives. They're 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 a contractual thing describing the behavior of something else, and but they have been engineered to take all of the real things. So if you create the hyper financialization, the bubble, mm -hmm. and you 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 do all of this uh, sophisticated sleight of hand to assure that the collateral will be taken when this collapses, you've you've created something out of nothing that collapses, and now you control everything. It's as simple as that. That's what it's about. Because if if they take all of the capitalization layers of all public companies, or most of all of the capitalization layers, they control all of the underlying assets of all public companies. And this is where even, even if you do have, um, it's kind of like what happened in the 30s, because you know, if you go back to that period of time by creating a, a bust that was engineered mm -hmm. by the Fed then, um, the equity layer is wiped out. Oh, most most companies went bankrupt, and all of the 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 players were in the debt layers. You know, the debt wasn't even trading at face value; it was often trading at a discount to face. But the debt ended up controlling everything. And this this time, it 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 what it what it is doing is. Um, you know, I also talk about this in the book, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, in their own documents, they show that these collateral management systems have been in place uh, that assure the legal transport of, of control of the collateral, particularly in a time of systemic stress, will, will, uh, uh, the, 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 the way this works is you have um, a, a central securities depository, which is the registry, the records of who owns what, but it's really the beneficial ownership. Um, then the securities are transferred, the legal control goes up into a pool. This is in, in Europe, the international central securities depository. Um, where that collateral is then used, transported to the uh, central clearing counterparties, which is where all the derivatives risk is concentrated. Now, this is another thing they did is derivatives used to be bilateral. So there were you you they were between two parties. And you knew who your counterparty was, and you were concerned about the credit creditworthiness of your counterparty. What they often do is they take something that was working just fine, 
and they say, well, that's too risky. <laughs> We're going, you have to do it. We have to change that. So they created a um, an imperative that all the derivatives had to be centrally cleared, which means your counterparty is the central clearing counterparty. And this is what people are unconscious about is they think they're hedged in the market, the big institutions, the pension funds, they, that here we are up here at this very lofty, don't worry, we've hedged our downside. Well, their hedges are in the done in the derivatives complex and the counterparty is the central clearing counterparty. And if those things are insolvent, if they fail, there are no hedges on anything. So what they've done is they have created a monolithic vulnerability intentionally. So I, I talk about this in the book when the, in their own documents, they are talking about the failure of the central clearing counterparties. This is in the, in the last few years. So they are, they are talking about it. They are preparing for it. The, the capitalization of these things is a pittance. They're undercapitalized. David, certainly they have trillions in capital because they're, they're, they're trying to counter clear a quadrillion of derivatives on a notional basis. Oh, no, so, so <laughs> I go through this, the, the Depository Trust Corp. One which, of my favorite corporations. <laughs> yes, which is, the, which is the central securities depository for the entire U.S. securities complex. And um, uh, much, much of the central clearing, uh, the, the central clearing counterpart, they have two central clearing counterparties. Um, the the uh, the total uh, equity capital for for the whole holding company is about three three and a half billion dollars. B so with a B with a B, with a B. <laughs> so that is uh, and and this is the case when you you know bank deposits. This is, we're just talking about the securities piece, but the same kind of thing you find when you look at the deposit insurance. These are very small numbers of what is available as insurance. But in this case, this is this is the big one because they they have um, uh, uh, explicitly said that they have set up and funded the startup of a new central clearing party at DTC when the ones they have fail. Now, what does that mean? It means that when those fail, there is no counterparty for all the derivatives that people think they've, they've hedged with. The collapse will be unbelievable. And, and um, but the, the secured creditors of the, in the in the Fed's document response response to the Legal Certainty Group, they make it clear that secured creditors of a clearing corporation have absolute priority claim to and, the. And who are those? Who who is the senior creditor in that circumstance? Well, we certainly know that J.P. Morgan is all over this. <laughs> J.P. Yeah. Morgan is all around this. There will. There will be some others as well, but it's very, very concentrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so um, simple question. Let's say I have a thousand shares of GM in a brokerage somewhere. Is there any way to know who has the senior claim on those? No, no, no. It's because they're pooled. It's all fuzzied up intentionally, you know, mm -hmm. so... so you know, these pools and now, I mean, this, it, it, okay, it, it's, they, they can be, they can borrow the securities without restriction. There's no limit to it. The intention is to have the system set up so they can use all of it. And you see this in the BIS document 
with their flow charts showing the collateral moving from the collateral givers to the collateral takers. They actually use those words. And the collateral takers at the very bottom are the central clearing counterparties. The collateral givers are, you know, trading desks, custodians. Now, you know, the way the system has worked, you know, they talk about pristine collateral, you know, as government bonds, but they expli the BIS explicitly talks about this, and this was over 10 years ago, that it may be that that won't be enough collateral. So we, we need to have collateral transformation. Now, what do they mean by that? That means if there is a call for more collateral, especially during a crisis, the, um, the firms that are supposed to pony up more collateral using, using their pools of client assets, if they're out of government bonds, they can say, well, we have these equities here. And uh, what we do is we swap, we enter into a swap agreement where we will give you all these equities theoretically for government bonds that you're swapping. So what that does is it puts the equities into the derivatives complex as collateral as well. Um, so the, the point is to use all of it, all types of collateral. Um, and again, this document with all the flow charts and explaining this is 10 years old. So this has been going on well advanced. Let's see if we can resolve this with an example. I love examples. So I'm going to screen share. This should be a very simple thing. I've asked many people. Nobody's given me a satisfactory answer. So don't feel bad if we don't get anywhere on this. But I'm going to play a simple game of who owns the gold. Okay. Um, so what's on the screen here for people watching? This is from the H4.1, which is the, the consolidated balance sheet of the Federal Reserve System. And they list stuff right here. So they have at the bottom, would say they have about $7.8 trillion left on the books. But right here, Line one, under assets, gold, gold certificate account. They they have on their balance sheet $11 billion worth of gold, which is all the gold that the United States has, about 261 million ounces, valued at $41 an ounce, which was coughed up to the Federal Reserve back there in, I believe, 1933 or 34, right? So there mm -hmm. it is. When, when I, I, you're a financial analyst, so maybe you can help me understand this, but my analysis says that if it's on your balance sheet, you're recording it as an asset, that means you have ownership of it you consider that yours okay all right that's part one part two is i wander over to the treasury.gov and on their balance sheet they're listing 11.1 billion dollars of gold and silver it's the same 11 billion with about 0.1 billion dollars worth of silver on the books which they still have so they're listing it as an asset so now i have two entities that say the gold is theirs <laughs> and and this is how they put it in the footnotes down here uh, they say gold is valued at da, 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 da. gold totaling 11 billion as of September 30th, 2020 was pledged as collateral for gold certificates issued and authorized to the Federal Reserve Banks by the Secretary of the Treasury. And here's how they valued that um, gold treasury may redeem the gold certificates at any time. What do you think is happening? What, what's what is that? Who who owns it and, and why the complicated leisure demand of having a certificate that you can redeem at any time and everybody claims the same gold on their balance sheet. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> See, it's a stumper, but I mean, this is the kind of, this is the exact, I think it's a good representation of this level of, of like shell. It's just, it's just needlessly complicated, right? Like yeah. you should be able to resolve a simple question, which is who owns the gold? Yes. Um, that seems like an easy yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's shocking to me what can be known that is just plain as day. What once you go into it, you know, the the things that you can see in primary source documents that are irrefutable, that really aren't even confusing. <laughs> that's 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 what I'm that's what I'm showing. Um, yeah, I but I don't I don't know what they're doing with that. 
I would I, I submit that the Federal Reserve actually owns the gold legally. Um, mm. But the Treasury claims it can redeem them at any time. It's weird. It, so it's funny because, um, I, I, you know, I told you I, I really follow the gold market closely. I can actually find out state nuclear secrets easier than I can find out who actually has how much gold. It is like one of the most tightly guarded secrets. You know, they say, oh, the stuff in Fort Knox has been audited. No, it hasn't. You know, the yeah. one vault was opened once and they let people see the, the bricks on the front. Nobody went to the back of the vault. It's just anyway, it, it's just been a thing. It's just like, oh. well, if it's if it's a barbarous relic, um, but they did make it a tier one asset, you know, with the Basel three accords. So I, I've never quite resolved where gold fits in the overall scheme of things. But what and I raise it here, um, not as a curiosity of my own weird intellect, but um, but because. I do believe it's the only monetary asset I can identify that's not somebody else's liability, assuming I hold the physical form. Yeah. No, I agree. An option value. I mean, clearly, clearly gold is still important. But, you know, what what I would point out is that, um, you know, and I talk about this in the book that, you know, when gold was confiscated in 33, it 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 was done under the rationale that they had to have the gold in order to expand credit. And that was set up with the Federal Reserve Act, which set a certain amount of gold backing that was required for the Fed to create money. So they were, uh, and then, then you go a little bit further forward, and I describe this in the book, that they built this enormous vault in Cleveland, where I'm from, in 1923, that is still the biggest vault in the world, with the biggest hinge on a, on a vault door in the world, in 1923. And they have machine gun turrets over, built into the building, um, and you wonder why was that done in 1923? And then in 1933, we know why, because they had to put all that gold somewhere that they confiscated. And it, it was all to be turned over to the Federal Reserve. Uh, and, um, this is, this is the shocking thing. They were, they were saying that the public was hoarding the gold. But then the Fed hoarded the gold. The Fed did not that point. Use, did not want the public using the gold to to actually make the economy work. It was it was a period of deprivation, forced deprivation. They kept conditions tight for years, so they did not use the gold. Uh, if the public had had gold, the the economy could have functioned. They didn't want that, so they took it all and they put it put it in vaults, like the one in Cleveland. Now, now in this go around, um, gold is not the collateral that will be taken. It is all financial assets, but that means that they will then control, uh, you know, all the assets of public companies, for example. Um, but so gold is, um, uh, it, 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 it's may not be taken right off and maybe it won't be taken at all. I think, I think there, you know, it may be that some of the inner circle here in this is actually hiding in gold that they they want that accepted out because that's what they will use principally. Hmm. So I have, I have two questions. Let me complete a thought from before, which is that whole, if somebody says something, then it happens, maybe they did it. There are these ideas floating out there. One, you'll own nothing and be happy, right? And But um, one of the things the WF told us by 2030 is Western values will have been tested to the breaking point. Not human values, not Eastern, but Western values. And one of the prime Western values to me is property rights yeah. like that is a that is a rock solid western value right they don't have that in hong kong you don't own the property you lease it from the government you know uh, every square inch right but we have private property or so we think this is um what you're describing here is is, is um is to say i now see the mechanism by which 
we own nothing. In fact, I see that you you go there and you 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 actually connect the dots and you say, if there's a big crisis, which there probably will be because pressures they they happen, and they dust settles and we find out, uh oh, <laughs> you know, all of my all of my security entitlements went poof. But you're in luck. We have a beneficent uh, Federal Reserve or other central entity which is going to give me um, uh, equivalent uh, stake in a central bank digital currency account. And then they will have achieved their final dream, I think, because it's all about control, right? There, there's no greater control well, and, than to have, and the, the, have the, a CBDC the shocking, account. The shocking thing, the case I make about what's happening now and showing what happened in the 30s is it's not just about control. It's about subjugation and deprivation. It's even darker than control. It's about taking, it's about dispossessing people and creating conditions where they can't service their debts. You know, this is what was done in the, it's a debt trap. Um, but part of that is taking even things that they own free and clear. So, you know, I talked about this, that, that, um, you know, I asked my, I, I would talk with anyone I could uh, that had lived through the depression about what what happened. And I asked my starting when I was fairly young, I was interested in this. And um, I asked my aunt and she said, well, all of a sudden no one had any money. And I couldn't really understand that. I couldn't wrap my brain around that. And um when I asked her further, she said, well, all of the, all of, suddenly even wealthy families had no money and that she knew girls who were in private school that their families couldn't send them back to school. And um, this is after the bank holiday was ended, which was declared a success. Now, why did why did even the wealthy families have no money? Because if they were not in the banks that were protected by the Federal Reserve System, they lost all their money in the in the banks. So that's the first wallop. But then secondly, what people don't understand is their debts are not canceled. Their debts are then consolidated into the surviving banks, the ones that are slated to continue. So it's a double it's a double wallop. Uh, you you lose a lot of something, <laughs> but your debts are not canceled. Those are maintained. You also go into serious uh, price declines where price levels stay low for a long time. And I go, I go through examples of that. Um, one of the things when I was looking at this, uh, um, I went down to the Cleveland Public Library. I started looking at this in the during the dot com bubble and bust because I knew we were we were somehow we were headed towards something like this. So they they have these enormous physical books of charts of uh, in the business library, and so I went through all the stock charts, all the commodity charts, and uh, you know, of course, when you look at the the public companies, you saw that most of them cease to exist. You know, this is how you have a decimation. Um, but the shocking thing is that all commodities hit a hard low price level of the prior sixty years in the thirties, with the exception of gold, even silver you know, does not, it's an industrial metal. Every, everything goes to a very hard low. And it, it um, price levels stay low for a long time. And I think that is also by design because um, people can't recover. They can't uh, pay off their debts. Um, and again, so let's go to this, let's go to this, what's happening why is this happening you know are people just evil well maybe, maybe there are some evil people but why are they doing this what's the imperative mm -hmm. so i go into this in the book that um there there's uh something called the velocity of money which is the relationship between uh, money supply and 
and the size of the economy. And um, I started studying this very closely in the in the late nineties through through the uh, Asian financial crisis and leading up into the dot com bubble because I started seeing that the amount of um, money flows was just they were just very big numbers. I started thinking. My, that's that's a big number. <laughs> I, I wonder uh, uh, the the uh, that's got to be big relative to the size of the entire economy, and and uh, then I started I started looking at the money supply, how much the money supply was growing week by week, M three, and um, I could see that in individual weeks, the new money created was over 1% of GDP. So if the economy is growing at 3 or 4%, but at times you're growing the money supply at you know, an annual rate of maybe tens of percentage points, something's happening. You know, you're getting... You're getting uh, it, it used to be that money created would generate multiples in economic growth. So there was an inversion occurring where there was much more money creation than any economic growth that was occurring. And um, so by the, by the fourth quarter of 99, at the peak of the dot-com blow-off, they were growing... Um, uh, clearly growing money at a 40% annual rate. So in my mind, that meant that they were not getting any transmission from the money creation into the real economy. And if I knew that at that time, the Fed certainly knew that. Alan Greenspan knew that. Why were they doing it? So these are kind of the smoking guns. They're intentionally creating these financialization blow-offs. Um, so going, I started studying the history of this, and I found um, that the velocity of money was actually collapsing leading into the 20th century. And, you know, we've always wondered, why, why did World War I happen? Was it really because an archduke was shot? You know, there's never been any plausible explanation for why it why it happened, but in in just a few years, the Qing Dynasty collapsed, the Turk Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, Germany was destroyed, the British Empire began collapsing, all in a few years, and um, what was happening then was the collapse in velocity of money. Now, the way I think about that, it, 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 it happens due to an exhaustion of the phenomena when so much money has been created that essentially it, it um, now you're pushing on a string. No matter how much money you're creating, it's not transmitting into economic growth. And the way I think about this, money, the money system is a very sophisticated control system so that you, so it isn't necessary to exert physical control over populations. They're chasing the money. They order themselves on those incentives. But if the whole, if the whole money system is collapsing, then they are going to lose control. So it's it's a uh, it's a uh, uh, you know a profound collapse that is occurring when that is happening. Now the the shocking thing now is that the velocity of money is at a lower level than at any point during the World Wars and Great Depression. And most people know if they think about it the scale of the money creation, for example, during the COVID period, just un unlimited money for everything <laughs> suddenly. And uh, so they have the power to do this, but, but actually the, the, the velocity of money began declining in 1997. 
So it, it first led to the Asian financial crisis, then stepping on the accelerator money creation created the dot-com bubble and bust. And um, it, it, the money creation has, you know, this, this first became critical in the U.S. and then it became global because China, China had been um, able to grow at a high rate with, with limited money creation. And then they also flipped the other way where dur during the great financial crisis where they were creating multiples of money for whatever GDP growth they were getting. So it was then turned into a global, um, global phenomenon. And that is why, you know, we were talking earlier, this is this, everything is synchronous. We're in a, we're in a global end stage process now. Yeah. Well, let me, let me mention, you know, with, with the book, I tried not to get into any conjecture just mm -hmm. to go with things that are thoroughly documented yeah, and, but I'll now I'll now say something that's in the realm of conjecture. When when you consider that, so I give this example of what does it mean if interest rates are dropped from five percent to one percent or less, and then they go back to five percent. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're in. Roughly, interest rates were dropped from five percent to zero, kept there for fifteen years and then returned to over 5%. So the, the example I give is if you have, and any, anybody can understand this, if you have a bond that pays a coupon, well, and, and first of all, we have to say this, this is a perpetuity. But my point is the, the whole financial complex of the world is essentially a perpetuity. You know, so, so, you, you have a perpetuity, a bond paying $5, interest rates are 5%, so the bond is worth $100. Pays $5, 5% of you know, 100 is $5, so it's worth $100. Now, if you drop interest rates to 1% and it's paying $5, now the bond is worth $500. So you have a 5 fold increase in the value of financial assets that are based on discounting back future flows. Now, if you do a round trip and you take the interest rates back to 5%, you have an 80% decline. So my point here is the cake is baked. We have mm -hmm. massive simply stunning, massive insolvencies globally as we speak right now. Uh, it's all commercial real estate, every, everything with the cash flow that determines its, its value. Uh, theoretically, all, all equities are based on discounting back future you know, cash flow streams, certainly all bonds. Um, this, it, it means that, um, many, many fund entities and banks are insolvent. Um, but somehow we really aren't hearing anything about that. 